0: Hi, Dr. Huang. Uh, Welcome to Network Capital. In this podcast, we try and understand uh, people's career choices, uh, their principles on which they molded their career and their mental models. Uh, uh, We've been fascinated by your research for years. Could you tell us a bit about uh, who you are and uh, uh, what do you do today?
1: Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so I'm a professor at Harvard Business School. And for the past, you know, more than a decade, I've been studying um, how, you know, decisions get made and especially how decisions are made um, with the, this, this premise that there's a lot of disadvantage for certain people and inequality and certain people are underestimated. Uh, and so I've looked at a lot of outcomes that people face in the workplace, as well as with their startups, um, and, you know, have found that um, a lot of the outcomes and success are, are not determined by things like uh, data and analytics and the hard factors, but instead are determined by perceptions and signals and stereotypes and cues.
0: And you've actually figured out a way where you can make your disadvantage your competitive edge. And you've authored a book which I found was fascinating. Um, Could you tell us a bit more about uh, how this all came into being? Uh, You're an engineer, you got a master's, then an MBA at INSEAD. Then how did a PhD and this interest in the whole subject come about?
1: Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, I've been doing research on it for a really long time and kept finding that based on things like someone's gender or race, ethnicity, class, um, religion, that there were disparities in terms of who was getting promoted, who was getting um, hired for top management team jobs, who was getting funding for their startups. And I started getting this question a lot of, well, what can we do about it? Right. If we if there's all of these sort of disadvantages that exist. Are there things that we can do? Are there strategies that we can that we can take or tactics? And um, and the thing with the thing is, a lot of the discussion is around these disadvantages and inequalities and how we can change things structurally. Right. By putting in more mentors, changing the way we do hiring practices, but not a lot around how as individuals, as individuals, how we can empower ourselves. That Are there strategies and how-tos and, um, and, and actionable things that we can do to sort of flip things in our favor? And that's really the origin of this book, was that I recognized that there was this thirst for how do we do this? If we recognize that there's negative perceptions against us or that there are stereotypes, are there ways for us to flip those stereotypes in our favor? So that we can create our own advantage. And it's this, 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 this aspect of, you know, we go into situations and some people naturally have an advantage. Others of us, what do we do? And so the book is around, if you don't naturally have an advantage, you can create one for yourself.
0: And I think uh, you're, uh, you're an American woman of Asian descent. Uh, amongst your other degrees, you got an MBA at INSEAD, a very international program, and then you decided to do a PhD. Um, I want to ask you about two specific meetings that you had, one in high school um, or, or in college where you went to your writing professor and the yes. other with Elon Musk. Yes. Um, tell us about both these meetings and uh, what did you learn from them? And uh, how does that factor in, in your research and in your book?
1: Yeah, so the, the one when I was in college, right, it was sort of this experience where, so I was, um, I was taking this university writing class, and it was a required c- course that everyone um, at the university had to take. Um, and, you know, I was in this course, and we had a series of writing assignments. And during and with the first writing assignment, I turned it in. And the, when I received it back, I had a very, very low mark. Um, a C minus if I, if I, yeah, yes, that's right. Good memory. Um, and so I sort of was shocked. I said, how did I have a C minus on this assignment? And so I asked the professor, I said, you know, I just want to understand how I, how I have a C minus on, on this since it's the first writing assignment. And I had expected him to give me some feedback, but what I didn't expect was what he said to me, which was that, oh, it's fine don't worry about this because in fact you're not a native English speaker um, and because you're except
0: not a native- you are a native English speaker
1: yes and, and so you know it was sort of this this you know I, I, I was sort of shocked for a second when he said you're not a native speaker and so you know, you, it's, it's not feasible for us to have for, for you to have received a higher grade and so don't worry about this. And so I, I sort of didn't know what to say, and then I, I went off. And for the second assignment, I was reflecting on this, and I wrote the second, the second writing about how I was not a native speaker and how this class was going to help <laughs> me so much, and um, that I was so grateful to this professor. And it was a very sarcastic sort of essay, but the professor detected none of my sarcasm um, and gave me a B plus on, on that paper. So, you know, it was sort of this, I, I recognized that he had this perception of me, even though it was incorrect. And I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do anything about that perception, even if I tried to convince him of it, because it wasn't based on how I communicated. And in fact, it was based on how I looked and his perceptions and his attributions of me. Um, and years later, one of the first, Um, you know, it it was also, you know, it reminded me of, of things where when my parents, you know, I was, I'm a child of immigrants and my parents, um, you know, had an accent the whole time I was growing up. And I remember my, my, both my mother and my father getting passed over for promotion after promotion, after promotion. And in one of those, one of those uh, instances, I asked my father, I said, you know, why do you think that you didn't get the promotion? Um, especially because in this instance, the person he was working for, his boss, my father was actually doing that job because that person wasn't actually qualified to be doing it. So the person who had gotten promoted over him wasn't qualified. And so my father was doing that job as his employee. Um, and so when I asked my, my father, he said, well, you know, it's probably because of my accent and the way that I communicate. And so one of the first things that I studied when I became an academic was sort of this this, this, this aspect of accent and communication. Um, and I found that indeed based on someone's communication, that they were less likely to get, um, promoted. They were less likely to get hired into top management team positions. They were less likely to get funding for their ventures. Um, and the underlying perceptions were in fact, um, not about communication, but in fact, things like how interpersonally influential they were, how, how, how good of a team player they were, um, how much they could think outside the box, and those, those sorts of things. So people have, are making perceptions based on, on things like how you look and how you speak and how you communicate, um, but, but on a whole host of, of different things. And that's sort of kind of what I learned over time.
0: And then after many years, after a whole bunch of illustrious qualifications, you got in a meeting with Elon Musk. Tell us more about that.
1: Yeah. So then it was it was it was fascinating because, you know, these perceptions are really sort of everywhere and they they come in lots of different forms. So I had this um I had serendipitously um, had a meeting uh, scheduled with Elon Musk, which is a whole sort of another story in of itself. But I had this meeting scheduled with Elon. A friend of mine had managed to get a meeting with him, in fact. And um, he invited me along because he was going to be talking to Elon about the emergence of the private space industry. And of course, Elon started a company called SpaceX. Um, and so we were meeting him to talk about sort of the future of, of private space. And we had done so much preparation for this meeting. We had, you know, we knew everything about SpaceX and not just SpaceX, but all of his other companies, you know, Tesla and so on and so forth. And we knew about his history. We knew um, we had worked so hard and prepared so well. We had even um, thought to bring. Um, a gift for him, you know, because I'm Asian. So we like to bring gifts for people the first time we're <laughs> meeting them. Um, and, and so we had done all of our sort of preparation and, and hard work. Uh, and so we show up at his office um, and he takes a look at us and looks at me. And within 30 seconds says, no, get out of my office.
0: Get out of my office. That's yeah, the, not such a polite thing to hear
1: yeah. right <laughs> Well, well literally the first word he said to me was no. And I'm thinking to myself, no, I, I mean, I, at this point I had not even said a word to him. So there's not I, I didn't even know what this was, you know, he was kicking us out of his office, but I hadn't even said anything to him. And so I sort of nervously was so uncertain about what to do in that moment that I. I kind of, when I get nervous, I sort of laugh a little bit. And so I sort of laughed and then he was sort of stunned that I was laughing. And, and then he, uh, and then he started laughing and I have no idea why he started laughing, (laughs) but I'm sure he doesn't have a lot of, you know, young Asian women standing in front of him laughing at him. And so he started laughing. And so both of us are laughing at each other. And it's at this moment that I realized that he's actually not looking at me but he's looking at the gift that I'm carrying. And I realized that the perception, the attribution that he's making about us is like, he had no idea who we were. In fact, he thought we were entrepreneurs. I I, I kind of was thinking to myself, I think he thinks that we're entrepreneurs trying to pitch him and that I'm carrying this prototype because it was unwrapped. Right. And I was like, it's this product prototype that, he thinks that we're trying to pitch him and get his money, and, and and trying to get his, you know, get something from him. And so I sort of sputter out in my laughter. Oh, oh you think we're entrepreneurs? And he says something like, Oh, you're not. And I say, Oh, no, no, no. And I said, And you think we want your money? And he's like, Don't you? And I said something along the lines of, In my nervousness, I said something along the lines of, Uh, uh what? You like, you have money or something? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and this is one of the richest men in 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 the nation. Right. And he he thought that was hilarious and then sort of looked at me and said, please come into my office. And, it, you know, it was sort of this. I needed to recognize this perception that he had of me that, you know, what I had forgotten was this is a man who's constantly getting asked for things. His default answer has to be no. People are always asking him for his time, his money, his resources, introductions to people. And once I sort of recognized that and showed him, you know, that, that it was something else that we were able to actually have this wonderful discussion and to be, and, and, and by the end of that meeting, he actually was offering us the very things that he thought that we were asking him for. He was, you know, he offered us He he introduced us to people, um, you know, he was offering us resources, all sorts of things that 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 we never had even
0: imagined that that could be possible. So So what was the uh, one big takeaway from from this meeting with Elon, which uh, which was clearly the most adventurous meeting anyone would perhaps have had with him? What was the what? One big takeaway from this meeting with Elon, what? How did it contribute to your research? How did it shape your thinking, if at all, in any way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I talk in the book a lot about, um, and I'll and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But um, gaining and creating an edge for yourself, one of the really important components is your ability to delight somebody. Is your ability to crack open that door when you don't have the opportunity or you're facing some sort of an obstacle or some sort of a constraint um, where the answer is no, get out of my office. How do you crack that door open so that you get the opportunity? And, you know, in the sort of disarming Elon and, 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 and sort of laughing and um, kind of showing him a different side of who we are, what we were essentially able to do was delight him. And, and when we delighted him, that's when he allowed, invited us into his office. And so when I talk about sort of creating an advantage for yourself, how do you create an edge? Um, the book is very much about this aspect of edge, but edge actually stands for the framework that I've developed through my research. It actually stands for E-D-G-E. And the E is about enrich. It's about how do you enrich and provide value? It's about knowing what your basic goods are and what your superheroes, your superpowers are, right? Your superpowers in terms of what are your strengths? What are the things that make you uniquely who you are? And also understanding your weaknesses, Um, knowing how you provide value in any sort of situation. And the problem, however, is that we often don't have the opportunity to show someone how we enrich and provide value, like I was not able to do so with Elon originally. Um, and But sometimes it's often because you don't belong to the right networks or the right groups or you don't look the right way or you don't sound the right way or you just don't have that chance. And so D is for delight, and that's your ability to sort of show somebody a different aspect of yourself that kind of makes them pause for a second and say, huh, let me ask a follow-up question or let me just dig a little bit deeper to understand when you're able to delight. That's when you have the opportunity, the chance to then show how you enrich and provide value. Um, the, The G is for guide because after you've delighted and you've started to show how you enrich, and provide value you still need to guide the perceptions of others you need to be able to redirect their stereotypes and redirect any incorrect perceptions or attributions that they have about you to who you authentically are so that guide piece is so important and then the final e is for effort and hard work and the hard work the effort it comes last in this framework We often think that hard work comes first, that if you put in the hard work, that it will speak for itself. But the problem is it often doesn't speak for itself. And we realize that hard work alone is not enough. We end up frustrated because we put in the hard work, but because of other people's perceptions or because of not getting the opportunity, the outcomes or the success goes to someone else. And so that's why the effort and hard work comes last in this framework, because if you know how you enrich and delight in guide, that's when you can put in the hard work and your hard work will work much harder for you.
0: Um, That's fascinating. I mean, this edge framework is uh, is super interesting to understand uh, bias, marginalization. Uh, You've studied uh, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and women in great detail, and also people with accents. Um, uh, How do you think people who come from, say, historically a marginalized background use this EDGE framework um, to their advantage? Specifically, let's touch upon accents and women.
1: Yeah. So let's talk first about accents. So, you know, this guide piece is so important because it's how you redirect perceptions. It's knowing those underlying perceptions that people have of you. So I spoke a little bit about how it wasn't about communication. So I want to talk a little bit, of, I can talk a little bit more about that because that's the lay view that a lot of people have, that if you have an accent, for example, that when you're not, when you have an accent, um, you may not be getting those outcomes because you're not able to communicate as effectively as other people.
0: Well, that is, that is a, that's, a, that's an expected assumption. I feel that, uh, Paul Graham spoke about it in one, uh, wrote about it in one of his essays and you've commented about it. Maybe you could crystallize it for our listeners because, you know, we're a, we're a very large millennial social network interested in work. So I think your insights would be super helpful to us.
1: Yeah. So, you know, what I, I, I ran this study where I was, I wanted to figure out what was happening with this sort of assumption about communication and, um, and what I found was that, so what I did was actually, I took, for example, I would take eight people and four of them would have accents and four of them would not have accents. And I would have them go into a situation where they were trying to get hired for a job, for instance. And I would I would sort of see whether or not they indeed would have negative outcomes. And in fact, I found that, yes, the people with accents were much less likely to get hired for the job than those who who did not have accents. The same thing with getting funding for a startup, right? I would have four people with accents pitching their startup and four people without accents pitching their startups. And again, I found people with accents were less likely to get funding for their startups. Well, so then I replicated this experiment, but I did this and did not ask the investors, for example, whether or not they would invest in this startup. Instead, I randomized the order in which they presented. So I had all eight of them presenting their ventures. And then I asked the investors, what did you remember about startup number one, startup number two, startup number three? What did you recall? What did you learn? Give me three bullet points about what you learned about that business. And what I found was astounding was that they actually learned just as much from the the entrepreneurs who had access than those who didn't. In fact, they learned more in some of those instances. They were also able to remember more. They were also had more positive views of that startup. So when I didn't ask them explicitly about would you invest, it was not about communication at all. In fact, it was about things like interpersonal influence, how good of a team player they are, their ability to to gather resources and fight for resources. And so then I sort of went into this piece that I talked a little bit earlier about, which is what can we do about this? Are there ways that we can empower ourselves to flip things in our favor, given that this is the case? So then what I did was I had these accented individuals go in and I would tell them before they went to pitch an an investor, I would say the perception they have about you is that you are less interpersonally skilled or the perception they have about you is that you're not a good team player. And so then they would go into interview situations and pitch meetings and they would get asked the typical questions that we all get asked. Things like, you know, tell me about a time when, you know, or like, you know, what's your, like those sorts of questions that we get asked. Right. And, when they, when they gave their examples, they would give examples of a time, for instance, where they fought for resources for their team, or a time, for instance, where they didn't stop until they closed the deal. They would give examples that specifically demonstrated how they were team players and how they were interpersonally influential. And what I found then was that when they flipped those perceptions, they were just as likely, if not more likely to get hired for those positions, to get the promotions and to get the funding for their ventures.
0: So they were able to uh, transform their disadvantage into uh, a, a clear competitive advantage using the EDGE framework with a little bit of a nudge.
1: That's, that's, that's absolutely right. They were able to redirect those negative perceptions that others had about them. And what they were able to do was, you know, the the investors and the hiring managers, they still saw the same positives about them. But by addressing those perceptions, those negative stereotypes that they had by redirecting and guiding them, they were able to then give themselves an edge over over others. And this is something that I found not just with with accent, but also with gender and race and ethnicity um, and all sorts of different traits and
0: characteristics. In fact, gender you've studied with even more in in great detail because I read your paper on gender and uh, uh, women with uh, social missions and uh, so forth. So uh, your research yielded uh, some fascinating results. Could you talk more about it and how can say uh, women entrepreneurs sort of leverage the EDG framework uh, for, to their for advantage. Sure.
1: Absolutely. So you know the e again is about enriching and knowing how you provide value. And women entrepreneurs have they we once you know the value, the importance of a of your company or your startup, right? It's sort of sort of there. But what happens a lot of times is that perceptions are made about women entrepreneurs. Um, especially women entrepreneurs that are in heavily masculine-dominated industries, um, these perceptions around competence and how competent they are and how warm and how communal and social they should sort of be. And what happens is that a lot of times um, there's this expectation that women um, need to be warm and communal and social um, and If they're not, there's sort of these negative attributions that are made about them when they're overly competent or they try and show their competence. There's also sort of this backlash because they're less likely to be seen as warm and social. And so what I found was that, um, you know, women were getting much less funding than their male counterparts, especially in these masculine dominated industries. But what I did was try again to see, are there ways that you can flip this to your advantage? Um, And so when I had women and experimentally looked at women um, pitching their ventures and they would pitch the exact same ventures, so it was the exact same idea, the exact same financials, all of those sort of things. But they would add in just one line, one or two lines about something along the lines of, And I'm doing this because I feel like it will have a larger impact for the social good. Or I feel like this is a, you know, something that kind of tapped into this communal, warm, social aspect. Even if it was the exact same company, the investors were much more likely to say, oh, this makes sense. Now I understand why this person is doing this. I understand how this person is the right person for this company. It gave them this cognitive congruence where they could match, okay, this is the right person for this right company in this right industry.
0: Um, you've also done an extensive study on be yourself. Yeah. Do you think be yourself is good advice?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, be yourself is sort of this advice that a lot of people give, right? They, you know, you're interviewing for a job and, and, and you know, your friends just say, oh, you're going to do great. Just be yourself. Or you're giving a big presentation and and people sort of say, oh, you're going to do wonderful. Just be yourself or you're going on a date. Right. And they just, oh, just be yourself. Um, and what you're referring to is that I often say, you know, be yourself in of itself. Is horrible advice. It's really be yourselves. There are so many different versions of ourselves, right? Who you are with your mother is very different from who you are with your best friend. Is who you is very different from who you are with your boss. And you need to be able to embrace all of these complicated and varied versions of yourself. Um, and when you're able to do that, um, that's when you're able to really understand the perceptions that others have of you and how they're seeing you and what version of yourself they're going to see in the best possible light. Um, And so it's really important to be able to sort of understand and embrace all of your strengths, but also your underestimated strengths and your weaknesses.
0: And I I found that that was such a useful piece of advice, uh, like this and the edge framework, because I think a lot of the, uh, you know, the the, the cliches that we hear on social media: "Be yourself, do this, do that." It's not wrong; it's just like woefully inadequate. So it confuses yeah. the hell out of uh, uh, millennials. So um, I just want to, like, you know, we're coming towards the close of the podcast. I just yeah. want to, wanted to ask you about uh, uh, about people who feel that they come from, or who who don't necessarily feel, who come from uh, marginalized backgrounds. What are the few things that they need to keep in mind over and above uh, what you've mentioned about the edge framework? How can they make their disadvantage their edge yeah. on a day-to-day basis?
1: Absolutely. Something that I talk a lot about in the book as well is that we tend to think that perceptions are about a singular trait or traits or things that people can see, you know, your, how trustworthy you are, how competent you are, what you look like. Um. But in fact, a lot of a large majority of what the assessments people are making are about your story, right? They're trying to write a story of who you are. And so what's really important as well is your trajectory. They're trying to make assessments about where you've been and where you are now and where you're going in terms of opportunities and the potential. And so it's really important to be able to put that in in a in light of, of, of what they're sort of evaluating you based on, right? Are you, um, is your trajectory one of a distance traveled where you've come very, very far? That even though you may come from this sort of background that you're actually, you've actually come so far, try and, try and help them write that story of you in the most positive light possible. Um, when you can sort of show them that trajectory is it a zig and zag trajectory where you've had to sort of laterally move? Is it that you've gone a, a really far distance? Is it that you've had to overcome a lot of adversity? You know, when you're able to sort of put that in perspective, don't let others write your story for you. Help them write that story of who you authentically are.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, I have to ask this, uh, the $5 experiment that you, that you came up with and like that has resulted in so many different results. Do you want to tell our listeners, uh, 100,000 millennials all around the world, um, what has been the most fascinating story of the $5 experiment?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so the $5 experiment is something that I would do with my students where I would give them, um, I would put them in teams and I would give them each an envelope with $5 inside and their job was to start a company. And they had to start a company or some sort of a profit generating entity within two weeks. And the fi- what was in their envelope was their startup capital. They could use that to buy materials or or whatever they needed to start the, the company. And um and and this is something that you know um to give credit where credit is due, this was this was done at Stanford as well. You know, this was not something that was unique to me, but um a lot of professors and researchers at scholar and, and scholars in Stanford were doing this as well. And what we all found was that um the companies that made the most money, right, we would I would have the, my students come back and present in teams what they had, what they had done with this and how much they had made. And the companies that did the best were those who had not even opened or not even used the five dollars at all. The companies that use the five dollars to do typically started things like a car wash, right? They would buy soap and sponges or they would do a bake sale where they would buy ingredients. Um, But the companies that did the best were the ones that didn't use the five dollars at all. They didn't use it as a constraint. It wasn't a constraint. So they would do things like um, they made a commercial where each of the team members would talk about a talent, And then they would send it out to all their friends. And then they hosted an evening where you could learn all of the things that their talents were based on. And they charged an admission price where everyone would pay. Um, You know, these sorts of ideas were the ones that ended up making the most money.
0: And they actually made some money from you as well. Right. $5. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: yes, yes. There was one that started this dinner um, and they charged and I actually was a paying member of this this dinner that they did.
0: Yeah. And I think I uh, and I'll end this quote on something that resonates a lot with network capital. I think you said um, meeting new people is isn't easy or accessible or something to that effect. And uh, they the this team actually signed you up for those five dollars. Like essentially transforming that huge constraint into a company. I mean, That's to get right. a competitive advantage of a company of that. That's um, right. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Huang, this was such a pleasure. I mean, uh, your research has uh, uh, empowered, you know, millennials all around the world. I feel that every single person in the, in the universe feel disempowered at some point in time. And I feel that your research gives him or her. A competitive edge to look forward to. And uh, I thank you for your time. Uh, and I look forward to having a follow up masterclass with you.
1: Thanks so much. Really appreciate it.